Welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host and I'm joined again this week as always by my good friend Luke Boggs. Luke, uh, how are you feeling? I'm probably more tired than you will ever hear me on this show because we've we're not even done with convention yet, but we're almost there. We just have the uh, reception tonight with Mayor Woodfing of Birmingham, Alabama. So I'm feeling very tired, but also very relieved that uh, we've had a pretty great convention. Yeah, so right now Luke and I are sitting in an empty ballroom here at the site of the Young Democrats convention. Uh, I came down, came down to town to join Luke uh, to see what uh, was a convention with a whole lot of energy for uh, young Democrats here in the state. Um, it's very clear that uh, everybody is excited about elections coming up, excited about the possibilities of a Democratic wave. Um, and that was certainly something that was on display here at the convention. Um, so for today's episode, we're just going to kind of recap the convention and uh, have a few discussions that we had with some candidates uh, while we were here. Um, but Luke, before we get into some of those discussions, uh, what was just kind of your takeaway of the day? I think my takeaway is just how much energy there is uh, on from everyone in uh, this organization. Everyone is uh, came really excited. There was a lot of engagement with the programming we had. We had both of the uh, Stacys here, uh, and uh, they both spoke and were asked some pretty hard questions. And so I think everyone's just uh, really engaged and looking forward to uh, continuing the work of this organization. So can you kind of just fill the listeners in for... Um, you know, people who are not familiar with kind of the mechanics of how the party works. Uh, who are the young Democrats and, and how does this relate to like the state party and, and what are you guys here to do today? So what we're here to do today is to handle all the business of the organization and to uh, handle our elections. So that is... You know, sort of the boring business stuff, but we're also here to have an opportunity for all of our members to organize and see each other, frankly, because Georgia's a pretty big state. So this is one of the few times during the year where everyone actually gets to be in the same room and talk about the things they've been experiencing and the problems that they have in their communities and how they've been working to uh, improve their lives and the lives of those around them and the campaigns they've been working on. So, I mean, really, the Young Democrats is for folks that are 14... Uh, to 35, so 36 is the uh, first year where you're no longer a young Dem, uh, apparently. And um, so the membership is actually quite diverse. We had several high school chapters here. We had several college chapters here, and we had uh, several young professional uh, or even just, you know, your common working people here. So, I mean, the organization is quite diverse, and it's a quite uh, different range of personalities and uh you know, political preferences and also organizing principles. So it's a, it's a pretty diverse coalition to work with. Yeah, the the thing that really stuck out to me was uh, the presence of the high school chapters that were here. Um, I talked with one student who described the, the process of organizing a walkout uh, in response to the school shooting in Parkland, Florida. Um, as you probably saw in the news, there were there was really a national day of school walkouts, including in some schools here in Georgia. Um, and so hopefully we're going to get to have some of them on the show soon. And so we'll talk about that more. Uh, but yeah, it was just really impressive to me to see all of that energy from uh, students as young as 14. And they 
I was impressed with just how eloquently they spoke about the issue of gun violence and how it impacts their day-to-day lives and impacts their education and how sophisticated they are um, in terms of organizing around this issue and, and making it a, a national and a moral imperative for policymakers and not letting them off the hook um, to let them just let this issue slide. Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing because people have been paying attention to high schoolers a lot more recently because of the Parkland shooting, but high schoolers in Camden County were already pretty active. High schoolers all around the state have been pretty active far before that. I mean, there were some in Camden County when I was there, but it's, you know, it's really changed over the past, you know, two or three years, I would say. And uh, folks are really just ready to see some change in a lot of issues and you know gun violence is the one that we're talking about now uh, because it is so personal for students and it is something that they have had to deal with in a very unique way and have to hear adults tell them that there's nothing they can do about it when they know that that's just not true and so I think what I'm hearing from them and what I saw today is just that that answer that there's nothing that can be done is not going to be acceptable for uh, that generation of activists and just citizens. They're not going to take it anymore, basically. And so I'm, I'm very happy to um, be a facilitator for that energy. And, you know, it was, it was pretty exciting. We had, uh, uh, you know, a contested executive vice president race. One of the candidates was a longtime member. Another one was um, a newer member who was from a high school chapter. I mean, they kept it competitive. You know, it was um, a very interesting uh, race. And, you know, the high schooler didn't win, but basically everyone came up to me and said that he needs to have a role in this organization and probably, you know, an appointed position or something along those lines. So it's quite clear people are really paying attention to these high schoolers and the work that they uh, want to do. And so I'm, I'm excited to be in a position to help them with that. Well, and one of the most fun things that I got to witness was uh, just the process of y'all voting on um, your elected offices and uh, you would go from chapter to chapter and the chapters come from all across the state and uh, each chapter had an opportunity to brag about uh, the things that are going on in their district where their where their local Young Democrats Party is active. Um, and so the energy in this state, uh, particularly in this room at the convention, it was not just among uh, Democrats in Atlanta or in Democratic strongholds. It was all over rural Georgia. Um, and so that was exciting to see. Um, but Luke, we also had uh, both Stacy, Stacy Evans, and Stacy Abrams also gave speeches here at the convention this afternoon. Uh, what were your takeaways from each of their speeches? I think that question is a little hard to answer because I've heard both of their speeches before, and while they're both very, you know very good and well thought out, uh, it's kind of hard to listen to the same thing again, have like a unique reaction to it. So I think. Um, I'll say that they're both talking about issues that neither, not neither, but any of the Republican candidates aren't, you know, they're not talking about it. They're not addressing it. And I think um, the tone of the state and the problems that the state are thinking about match what the Stacey's are talking about far more than uh, Casey Cagle or Hunter Hill or any of the other candidates um, that are in the race. And I think what really hit me about both of their appearances here was just how much everyone in the organization wanted answers from them you know like neither you know i feel like there's a lot of energy in the young vote for both candidates uh the abrams folks are a little louder about it but there's plenty of people that um are pretty hardcore about evans too but i think what was really 
made me happy was that there was tough questions for both of them and that neither one of them walked in and was the clear front runner based on how hard they were grilled. And I think that's what our candidates need um, and, you know, to respect the energy and the um, focus that our members have on seeing change not just talked about and not, you know, platitudes said about, but um, actually done. So, Kyle, uh, we're very happy to have you host a forum uh, as part of this convention. So I'd you know, love to have your thoughts on that. I unfortunately did not get to uh, listen to that due to uh, having to run around like a madman keeping this convention running. So just uh, let us know how that forum was. Yeah, I had the opportunity to host a forum with some young elected officials. Um, and so thank you, Luke, for giving me the opportunity to do that. On this panel, I was joined by state representatives Park Cannon and B. Wynn and state senator Jen Jordan. Um, it was exciting to have an all-female panel, particularly at, at this moment in our politics. Um, and a lot of the discussion really focused on some of the challenges that they faced, uh, but also a kind of a different environment that has emerged um, at this moment in our politics. Because, you know, traditionally, women have faced a lot of sexism on the campaign trail when they've uh, decided to run for office. They kind of have to uh, work harder than men to get half as much. And um, I think one of the interesting things about here we are in the Trump era and a lot of women are galvanized, particularly by not only the president's rhetoric, but by the policies he champions, uh, taking health care away from millions of people, restricting access to abortion. Uh, there, there's a lot of issues, uh, even more so than just just some of those health and, and reproductive health issues that that women see. Uh, the current administration and the current uh, Congress as threatening to their rights and to, to their safety. And, and so that has understandably spurred a lot of them to action. And, and this year we have uh, a record number of women running for the state legislature and statewide seats. One of the things that was interesting about the panel is, is uh, representatives Wynn and Cannon and state Senator Jen Jordan, they talked about the personal challenges that they've faced uh, just in the personal interactions that they've had with uh, other members of the state legislature, you know, B. Wynn described a vote that she took on the amended state budget. And she talked about how, you know, on the floor, somebody came over and kind of questioned her vote and sort of implied that a no vote on, on the supplemental state budget was a signal that she would be difficult to work with. And, was sort of trying to pressure her to change her vote. Uh, Senator Jen Jordan talked about an interaction that she had with somebody uh, who was telling her to bring her kids to the floor of the state Senate to make her seem more relatable. Um, and these are challenges that men legislators obviously don't face. Um, and so there's a lot of gendered criticism and gendered language aimed at these three women uh, in their service. But it was really, I think, clarifying and um, really put on a display the challenges that they face, but how they've had to adapt to those challenges. And, and despite that, you know, they've really stuck to their guns and uh, have not been in intimidated or, or threatened by the way that they've been treated in a personal sense um, in terms of sticking to their policies. Um, the other thing that I thought was really important to come out of that is is this discussion around representation and the need for 
people of different backgrounds to see themselves, their experiences, and their lives reflected in the people that are representing them at the Gold Dome. And these three women obviously play a role in that, uh, being that they are they are from different backgrounds from uh, you know what has traditionally been a very white and very male uh, state legislature. And so, um, you know, I, I want to thank State Senator Jordan and State Reps Cannon and Wynn for for participating in that panel and and for having me there to moderate it with them um, and for their ongoing work in the state legislature to make it more equitable for uh, people from different backgrounds. So another thing that I was able to do at this conference was to take a few minutes to the side and talk with Stacey Evans and Stacey Abrams. They are the two Democratic candidates for governor that will be competing in the Democratic primary in May. Um, I started out by asking both Evans and Abrams about whether or not the tax cuts and the revenue losses that were in House Bill 918, the big tax cut bill that we talked about a couple of episodes ago, I asked each of them whether or not the revenue losses in those bills would impact their ability to get some of the priorities that they've endorsed achieved if they were to become governor. Uh, Stacey Abrams has endorsed Medicaid expansion, a state-earned income tax credit, and expanded child care options, while Stacey Evans has also endorsed Medicaid expansion, a fully funded QBE, a fully funded education formula, and tuition-free technical college. Um, so here is what each of them had to say about what the impact of that tax revenue loss would be, um, and whether or not they felt like any changes should be made to the tax bill that passed and was signed by the governor. Unfortunately, instead of investing those dollars into real programs that will advance economic justice in the United, in the state of Georgia, we have delayed opportunities. But this is going to come up again in the 2019 legislative session. And I think it's going to be important for us to understand the f- full implications of the tax bill once we've gone through the full tax cycle, and then to make choices that will allow us to keep as much revenue in the state of Georgia to pay for the critical issues that we have to pay for. We cannot be a state that is a good place to do business, that's a good place to work, to live or play if we do not invest in the fundamentals like expansion of Medicaid, like child care tax credits, like an earned income tax credit. Do you think that any of those revenue losses should be reversed? I believe all of them should be reversed. Medicaid expansion offers a a massive boost to our economy, 56,000 jobs more than the jobs that are currently being offered through Amazon. And if we have Amazon and Medicaid expansion, that's more than 100,000 jobs that could be coming to Georgia. Our willingness to invest in one and not invest in the other shows, I think, a wrong-headed approach to what we should be doing in the state. And my intention is to make certain that we're investing and lifting up all Georgians and not simply focusing on our favorite ideas. And here's Stacey Evans on that same question. I don't. Um... I will say to you, I think anytime we can give tax relief to Georgians, we should, but we have to be very responsible because Georgia does have, Georgia's government does have things that it has to pay for. Um, some of the things you mentioned, however, uh, we have the ability to pay for them regardless of tax relief or not uh, through the bill that just recently passed out of the General Assembly. And I should also say it's been very interesting to me that Republicans haven't been very honest about the um, effect of this bill on, on Georgians. It actually doesn't go into effect until 2021. Uh, so there's no immediate tax relief uh, to Georgians coming forward. But when it comes to 
restoring tuition-free technical college. Uh, that is all lottery money. It doesn't require a single tax dollar. It will cost approximately $20 million to put the HOPE grant back to fully funding tuition the way that it did prior to 2011. Um, that all comes from the lottery. We have $60 million new dollars coming into the lottery for education fund every year that we're not spending. So that is something we can do on day one with no tax dollars with existing revenue through the lottery. Um, expanding Medicaid is something that's going to be um, a net positive for um, for the state. For every dollar that we spend on Medicaid expansion, eight or nine dollars are made. Seventy thousand new jobs are created, and not only are we giving citizens access to health care, but we're also creating jobs because that's how we're going to get some of these rural hospitals opened back up. We've had eight closed since the state made the terrible decision not to expand Medicaid. So this is a way to do all that. We're going to need to make an initial investment of about $250 million in the first year. Um, but again, we're going to make that back uh, because of the new jobs and revenue that's going to be created. Fully funding our schools, this comes, this comes to us. We've never fully funded our schools. Ever since we created the formula in the early 80s, and it's extremely frustrating to think about us creating a formula that we knew was needed to give every child a quality basic education and we've never fully funded it. What we need to do is make sure that we're fully funding our schools but that we're funding them efficiently and we are spending money in the way that we know is needed to allow kids to learn. We know that it costs more to educate a child living in poverty than one that does not. Right now our funding formula doesn't reflect that reality. So what we've got to do is, is we've got to fully fund our schools but we've got to do it in a way that's actually going to be effective. I happen to think that there's a lot of, um, of waste in the budget. Uh, every year we look at the budget, we see basically the new money. We don't go back and look at the dollars that were allocated 5, 10, 20 years ago in all instances. So I think there's a lot in the budget that is no longer being spent efficiently throughout our departments in the state. And I want to take a full top-down look to see where the dollars are going and then make sure that we are allocating those most efficiently uh, to do all the things that we know government needs to do. Government can't do everything, but government has a role. Government needs to invest in infrastructure, transportation, health care, and it needs to invest in people through education. And when we make those the priority and we reflect those in our budget, we'll be able to give Georgia, give us all the Georgia that we all deserve. So do you think there are any um, significant changes to the tax bill that you would advocate if you were to become governor? I think that we need to take a look at it. Um, we want to do as much as we can to not um, burden Georgians with taxes that, that they don't need to be burdened with. And there have been significant changes at the federal level, which I think will cause us to look at uh, potential changes at the state level. But I do think it's too soon. I don't think we should be rushing in to make changes before we know how all these federal cuts are going to are going to shake out and how they're actually going to affect families. And so as governor, uh, immediately I want to take a really hard look at this and make sure that we're doing the best that we can by all of our Georgia citizens. This next question I also asked both Abrams and Evans. Recently, the Trump administration has opened up the possibilities for states to take the option to impose work requirements on their Medicaid program. Uh, this means that people who are recipients of Medicaid, the health care program for uh, low-income people, that they would be required to work as a condition for their eligibility for that program. Um, I asked both Stacey Evans and Stacey Abrams if they believe that the state of Georgia should take up that option and impose a Medicaid work requirement. Here's Stacey Abrams. No. Medicaid expansion, Medicaid itself is designed to provide access to health care. And what we have to understand is the complexity of the families that often need this access. These are often working poor people who are already going to work every day. And if they're not working, there are often reasons for it. 
For example, I met recently with a woman who could not work because she was taking care of not one but two disabled parents. That's work. And because of that, she could not earn an income. And without that income, she could not qualify for health insurance. She should not get sick taking care of her family. We should provide access to Medicaid, access to health insurance, because that's the right thing to do, because health care is a right and not a privilege. And here's Stacey Evans on that same question. Well, I think it's, it's, an, interesting, um, it's an interesting statement from the president to try to make, make an assumption that people don't work already. Uh, I think that that's just wrong. The next question that I asked both of them was on the topic of working with Republicans. Abrams is the former leader of the Democratic caucus in the House, and Evans was a member of that caucus. During the entirety of both of their times in the legislature, the House was in Republican control. So I asked each of them what lessons they draw from that experience and how it would inform their working with Republicans if one of them was to become the next governor. Leadership is about figuring out how do you help the most number of people be successful without ever compromising your values. And what I learned to do in the legislature is first and foremost understand what the mission of the GOP was. In the places where we could work together, my mission was to find opportunities for us to be successful together. When we were in conflict, the responsibility I had then as the minority leader was to make certain that our conflict became their urgency. But as the governor, there are powers that you have, powers not only to veto, but powers to influence, powers to shape the conversation, not only under the Gold Dome, but across the state. And I'm excited because 11 years of leadership has prepared me not only to talk about what I can do, but have a proven skill set where I've blocked anti-reproductive choice legislation, where I've blocked anti-labor legislation, where I've gotten good money added to budgets and good legislation through. And I intend to take those skills and that capacity to the governor's mansion. Here is Evans on that same question. She began by clarifying my question to say that she was not working on in concert with Republicans on the hope cuts, the legislative issue that she has noted significant difference with her opponent on. Well, I never worked with her to work with Republicans to cut hope. That was not my role. My role was never to help the Republicans hurt the citizens of Georgia by cutting away scholarship dollars uh, through the best program that Democrats have ever created here in the state. So I just want to be very clear about that. Um, Working with Republicans is not a bad thing. Working across the aisle, uh, working with people that disagree with you is not a bad idea, but you don't need to work with them to hurt uh, Democratic ideals and Democratic policies. You work with them to you work with them to get things done. So for example, I had to work with Republicans to expand the HOPE grant after it was cut so drastically in 2011. I passed two pieces of legislation, one that got rid of the GPA requirement on the HOPE grant and the other that created a subgrant to provide full tuition HOPE grants uh, to students who made a 3.5. On both of those pieces of legislation, I had Republican co-sponsors and the Republican governor had to sign both of those. So I had to work with them to do that. So I worked with them to do good things I don't work with them to help them do things that I thought were wrong. That's not how compromise works. So you compromise to work on good policy together, but you don't compromise to help someone hurt you. That's the big difference between me and my opponent in this, in this, in this campaign. But I have no problems working across the aisle. I had great relationships across the aisle when I was in the legislature that allowed me to not only work on those hope bills, um, but to work in fighting RIFRA, the so-called religious liberty legislation, to work on legislation to help combat the opiate crisis. And I'll continue to work with Republicans where I can, and I think that's just good government. Um, but I will not compromise 
core democratic values in opening up access to opportunity for the sake of compromise. I won't do it. My final question for Abrams was about education. Uh, For a while now, Democrats have talked about the need to fully fund public education. And typically what this means is closing the current funding gap in the state's education funding formula. That's the difference between the amount the funding formula says that uh, Georgia's K-12 schools need and the amount that the legislature actually appropriates to all of the schools in our state. Um, So I asked her if she supports closing that gap in the funding formula and if there are any substantive changes to the formula that she thinks need to be made. Uh, So here's Abrams on that question. I believe that closing the gap is the baseline. We know that more than $9 billion has been lost since 2003. Those are real lives that have been affected. Those are real harms that have been done to our children. But we have to do more. We have to provide full wraparound services because we know that poverty is the strongest predictor of academic failure. If we are willing to invest in those wraparound services, health care, mental health care, social services supports, but also basic things for their families like access to legal services and access to supportive housing, those are all pieces that should be included in how we think about education funding. We have to understand the complexity of being poor in an urban setting, in a suburban setting, and in a rural setting. But we also have to think about the fact that special needs children are expensive to educate and deserve more investment and should not be treated as second-class citizens. We have to invest better in ESL students, students who speak English as a second language, because their ability to compete and participate in our economy depends on what we do from their very beginning. And so I believe that we use KBE as the baseline, but we have to go beyond that because education is our most fundamental responsibility and it should receive the greatest amount of our investment. Do you think that the state should do like a formal adequacy review of the QBE funding formula to measure whether or not it really is meeting the needs of the formal process that should be done? I will say this. We have studied this a lot. Every governor in my recent memory has studied this. The challenge is not whether we know the answer, it's whether we're willing to have the political courage to implement the answer. My mission is to use political courage and actually do what we've only talked about. I don't want to be known as an education governor. That's something a lot of folks talk about. I want to be known as the public education governor. I am the strongest advocate for public education in this race, Democrat or Republican. I have never voted to diminish access to public education, and I've fought against school privatization. We need a governor who's not going to study issues, but actually do something with the information and the answers we have. My final question for Stacey Evans was a little bit different. Uh, I had actually gotten the chance to talk with Stacey Evans about her views on education pretty thoroughly in an episode that we aired earlier this year. Um, If you'd like to hear more from her on education, we'll put a link to that show in the show notes. Um, So I asked her about what she thought about the ability of the people involved in the Young Democrats of Georgia to bring about change in not only the Democratic Party, but Georgia's politics as a whole. Uh, Stacey Evans is a former leader of the Young Democrats of Georgia, and she was at the conference for a couple of speeches on Saturday. And so she got to spend a pretty good deal of time with uh, the Young Democrats involved in this process. And so I was interested in her thoughts on uh, Young Democrats' energy and what they could do to change uh, the Democratic Party and uh, Georgia's politics overall. They absolutely can bring about the change, and they're the ones that will do it. Um, This is how I got my start. 
this is the organization to be a part of if you want to run for office, if you want to work on someone's campaign, if you want to just be uh, a volunteer on someone's campaign, if you're going to be an activist, whatever you want to do in politics, this is a great organization to find those people that that you can work with going forward. So I absolutely believe in the power of this organization and the people within it to bring about the change that they all want to see here in the state. And it's exciting to think about when I first got involved in the Young Democrats, it was 1997. And here we are um, over 20 years later, and the organization is still going extremely strong. And looking out in the crowd, um, I see people that remind me of the people that were involved when when I was involved in the Young Democrats, and that's exciting. So another exciting thing about this conference was that we were able to sit down with a couple of candidates that were running for office. Um, And so we want to share a couple of those conversations with you now. Uh, We sat down with uh, Sarah Riggs Amico, she's a candidate for lieutenant governor. And then we also sat down with Matt Southwell. He's running for a state house district. Um, so we're going to share those two conversations with you back to back. And we'll start here with uh, Sarah Riggs Amico. All right. So we're now joined by Sarah Riggs Amico. She is uh, running for lieutenant governor as a Democrat. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me, Kyle. Um, so could you just tell us a little bit about your background and what motivated you to jump in this race? Absolutely. So uh, unlike a lot of people running this year, I actually don't come from the political world. I'm a business owner, uh, graduated from the Harvard Business School in 2003, and I've spent most of the last 15 years creating businesses and jobs that didn't exist before I was there. Um, since 2008, uh, my family bought a little company called Active Transportation, a car haul trucking company that moves finished vehicles, if you've ever seen the double-decker trucks going down the highway full of cars. Uh, It was a business like that. 120 employees, uh, relatively small for the industry, and this was at the peak of the financial crisis in 2008. So most people thought we were crazy and that we would all probably go bankrupt trying to save this little business. Um, It was a Teamster car haul company and in a tough business in a very tough moment in its history. Uh, We, on the other hand, I was always brought up to believe that there was no such thing as an unfixable or unsolvable problem. There are sometimes leaders who are either unwilling or unable to solve a problem, but I haven't yet encountered an unfixable problem. So we believed we could save it. We did. Uh, Fast forward about a year later, we bought a company called Jack Cooper, which was founded in 1928. run by the third generation of the Cooper family. They were the absolute gold standard in the industry, but they were really hit hard by the financial collapse and um, didn't want to sell to private equity, didn't want to see their granddad's legacy liquidated at auction. Mm -hmm. They wanted to find a family that would take care of their people the same way they had for three generations. So we reached an agreement to acquire Jack Cooper in 2009, and about a month or month and a half later, uh, General Motors and Chrysler went bankrupt, Mm -hmm. two of our largest customers. So we found ourselves yet again in the trenches of really trying to help bring back the American automotive industry from the Great Recession. Uh, Today, I'm very happy to tell you we not only survived uh, in the face of a lot of people who didn't think that was possible, but we are one of the largest women-owned business enterprises in the country. I took over as chairman in 2014, and shortly thereafter, we became a certified woman-owned business enterprise. We are also now the largest car haul company in North America. We're at about 3,500 employees. Um, Over 2,000 of those jobs are Teamsters and machinists, so union members. 
And I'm very proud not just that we survived and at the tremendous growth to go from 120 employees to 3,500 in less than 10 years um, in a completely down market in the middle of the Great Recession with no private equity. And, and I, you know, we weren't born wealthy, so we had to do it the old-fashioned way by just fixing the business mm-hmm. um, and raising debt. And uh, now today, I think we're proud of the kind of company we run, not just its size, not that we survived, not the growth, but we actually pay for our employees' health care premiums. So in our business, whether you're union or non-union, we provide fully funded health insurance for you and your family. We also, uh, last fall, I launched a program to provide for our non-CBA employees two weeks of fully funded parental leave. Um, Whether you're a man or a woman, gay or straight, whether you're a birth parent, a foster parent, or an adoptive parent, we believe that spending time with a new baby in your family is a critical moment you can never get back and that you should be able to do that on our company's nickel. So what I'm most proud of is that we've built a company that tries to walk the talk. Uh, Taking care of our people is essential to who we are. And I believe you can not only do that at the same time that you create jobs and grow a company or an economy, I believe that if you want to grow over the long term, you have to make smart investments in your people. So the parallel to the government world for me is really that we can fully fund healthcare and education and infrastructure. We can expect our leaders to sit down with people with whom they may not agree all the time and demand accountability and results. Those are the principles I've used for the last 15 years in the business world. And those are the principles I'm going to bring to the Gold Dome as your next lieutenant governor. So I, I take it you think if, if your business can walk the talk, then so should the state of Georgia. They should be able to walk the talk, too. Um, Absolutely. I'm particularly interested in uh, your your views on health care. How, how is the experience of, um, because I'm familiar with, you know, businesses have faced rising health care costs um, over the last couple of decades. And so um, what do you take from looking at that challenge of rising health care costs, finding a way to uh, fully fund that health care for your employees. What, do you, what lessons do you take from that in terms of how Georgia can better, uh, better fully fund their health care? Absolutely. First and foremost, I think growth and development, whether that's in a business or in an economy or a state or, for that matter, the country, has to take a long-term view. Um, smart business people know that the best return on investment you can ever get is investing in your people. So I think first and foremost, a long-term view of what are we building and who are we. And as a company, we're guided by six core values. One of those core values is responsibility, obviously, to all of our stakeholders, our customers, our employees, our investors, the communities where we live and work. One of those core values is health and safety. So for me, in order for us to fully live those values, we had to fund healthcare. Um, This was a question of who we were as managers, who we were as owners of the business, and who we are as a company. We have to be able to put our values into action. And and I think the parallel is actually pretty good for government. Um, We need to decide as Georgia, do we want to be the state with 64 counties without a pediatrician? Do we want to be the state where 79 counties don't have an OBGYN? Do we want to be the state where 40% of our counties don't have an emergency physician and where six rural hospitals have closed in five years? If those were statistics in my business, I would fire the leader in charge and I would replace them with a better leader, more capable of delivering results. And the problem in politics is that we seem to accept that the leadership we have is as good as it gets. And I know better. 
we can do both. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can invest in healthcare and education and infrastructure. We can expect our leaders to deliver results and put our interests first, not special interests, not their campaign donors. And if not, we can expect that they'll be out of a job and replaced by some of us who think we can do it better. So we had a panel this morning at the conference with uh, Representatives B. Wynn and Park Cannon, State Senator Jen Jordan. And a lot of what we talked about at the panel was this moment in politics where women have previously faced sexism and discrimination when they've considered running for office. Um, but we've also entered this moment now where there's a record number of women running for uh, office in Georgia. And so there's a whole new community of women that are a part of this process. And, and you're a part of that too. Um, so in this moment in our politics, what does that mean to you? Well, first of all, I've spent most of my career as the only woman on a management team, certainly the only woman in the boardroom. In the 90-year history of our company, I believe I'm the first female to be the chairman of the board. So I understand how difficult it can be to be the first and to be the only. And I also understand when I became chairman and added another woman to our board, happened to be African-American, but we added her because of her capabilities and her intellect and what she brought to the board discussions. I understand how much better our company's government governance became. We were able to more thoroughly look at all angles of a problem. We were able to reach a different level of discussion in our decision-making process. And I think that same thing is going to happen to government. There's not a person who will listen to this podcast that believes we would have 64 counties without a pediatrician and 79 without an OBGYN if we had equal representation for women in our state legislature or if we had a female lieutenant governor or a female governor. Our government has to start to look and explore problems from the perspective of all of its citizenry. So yes, you know, I'm very comfortable being the only woman. I, I don't. It's an unfortunate reality of being a business owner who runs a 90-year-old industrial industrials company in the trucking space. Mm -hmm. But what I love is now that I'm in the position of being the person who runs the business. I've made every effort to make our team more inclusive um, in all types of diversity. And so I think that's the moment. It's not just about getting women elected this year. That is certainly a win. I have two daughters. They're five and seven. I am counting on this generation of leaders and on voters in your generation to make a government that looks more like the people my daughters are friends with, that's truly reflective of our people. But at the same time, getting elected isn't enough. Once we're there, we need to start to create the environment in which businesses and government and our community partners can incorporate the rich diversity that Georgia has to offer. And we need to start putting forward bills and candidates and every angle to attack the problem to make sure that this isn't just the year of the woman, but that it's the dawn of a new era in which our government is more representative. And uh, one thing that actually kind of just occurs to me about this position is you would be, uh, if you were elected lieutenant governor, you would be the leader of the Senate. Um, but it is still possible that the Senate could have a Republican majority. Um, so it would almost be 
as incumbent upon you as maybe a potential next Democratic governor to also find ways to work across the aisle. Um, and so have you thought yet about how you would tackle that challenge of trying to convince both Democrats and Republicans to um, see things your way and, and push policies that you would champion? Absolutely. In fact, I think that's one of the best advantages of coming from the business world as opposed to the political world. Uh, we don't bring that baggage, the history of the two parties and any conflicts they've had. Um, and in fact, in my job, I work with people who disagree with me sometimes quite passionately every day. And that's part of what makes the team better. We're expected to go in and be able to find the 1% overlap, even when people vehemently disagree, Hmm. that 1% overlap where progress happens and results are delivered. That is exactly the same mentality that every person who takes a leadership role under the gold dome should have. So for me, it's normal. You have to find a way to get along with everybody. In my company, I've spent time negotiating with bondholders in the capital markets, huge banks like JP Morgan, asset management, uh, financial players throughout the capital markets. And we're not always on the same side. I own a business that's unionized. So occasionally we negotiate with our unions. We don't always have the same point of view, but we always have the same end goal which is that we want to make the company stronger for the future generations that will work there, and we want to make sure that we're providing a great service to our customers. It is exactly the same thing in business. Even if we disagree, that's not an excuse for being unproductive. So for me, um, yes, of course I've thought of it. It doesn't bother me, but I also think, you know, most people politically live sort of between the 30-yard lines, right? And what's troubling as an outsider is that most of our politicians seem to hang out in the end zones waiting to score points. That's not going to make the world better for my kids. Mm -hmm. So, you know, look, this wasn't a job that I had to do. I hadn't planned on running for office. But my personality is not such that I could sit on the sidelines and watch people consistently deliver what I consider to be subpar results and do nothing about it. I know I can do better than these guys. I've done it for the last 15 years as a business owner, as an executive, And I will continue to do it for the rest of my life. And so if people want to learn more about your campaign and how they can support your efforts, uh, how can they do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, The best place to go is probably our website, which is Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, for F-O-R, Georgia.com. So SarahForGeorgia.com. I also am really enjoying getting to know Twitter. Uh, I I am a latecomer to that party, but at Sarah Riggs Amico is our handle. Um, And I think it's a really good way for us to have a conversation, particularly to respond to events in real time, as we did recently with Casey Cagle's desire to sort of poke Delta, our state's largest private employer in the eye, at the request of one of his campaign contributors, the NRA. I think um, it's great for responding in the moment to those situations, but I also think it's a great way to start a conversation with younger people. You know, I think what I love about being at this conference in particular today is that this group of voters is consistently underestimated, consistently underestimated. And and so I'm, I fall into what's called, I believe, the the zennial micro generation. So the tail end of the seventies, right? The people Mm. that are sort of squarely wedged between Gen X and the millennial generation. And I really feel like I can understand the point of view of both. But I like to think that the part of me that helps me decide to fight for fully funding health care for my employees or to starting an annual volunteer day for our company, um, 
or to providing paid parental leave or to getting my energy from a solar co-op as uh, somebody who really cares about protecting our planet. I like to think that those virtues, that optimism and idealism, that piece of me comes from the millennial side. And so I have a lot of hope in your generation. I have a lot of hope in the younger voters. Uh, And candidly, as a parent, I'm counting on you. You guys have got to get out there and bring your friends and show your might at the ballot box and remind people who you are. So for once, I'm going to tell you, don't put down your phone. I know you hear that a lot, probably. Um, But pick up the phone, go on Twitter, follow us, tweet at us, help us spread the word, you know, sign up to be a digital canvasser, go on our Facebook page at Sarah Riggs Amico for Lieutenant Governor. Um, But be a part of the conversation, because my guess is, despite what the popular zeitgeist has been about the millennial generation, um, you know, causing problems, right, or not being a full participant, We're usually the ones to blame. (laughs) Yeah, but I I think it's unjust. I I think you guys are going to end up being the hero in the story. And I mean that very sincerely. Um, My hope is that that kind of idealism and the desire to have a balance in your life and the desire for people like me who are business owners to be a business owner with a conscience and a heart. Um, Hiring millennials, particularly our tech guys in the R&D group, you know, the guys that are experimenting with artificial intelligence and deep learning, it is absolutely one of my favorite parts of my job. It's amazing. Like the future is going to be so much better for so many people because of the creativity and ingenuity and idealism that your generation brings. So, yeah, pick up the phone. This is one older person that's not going to tell you to put your phone down. (laughs) Pick it up, but engage in the conversation. Well, Sarah, we're excited to see where it goes. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today and good luck in your race. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So we're now joined by Matt Southwell. Uh, He is running for state house. Uh, Matt, what state house district are you running for? I'm running for House District 34, that's downtown Kennesaw, KSU, Kennesaw Mountain, and a bit of North Marietta. Okay, cool. Um, So can you just start out and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what uh, inspired you to jump into this race? Uh, Well, about me, I'm a 32-year-old IT professional. Uh, I've been working in the field for about nine and a half years now. I'm a single dad. And I've lived in Kennesaw since April of 1991. I'm very proud to call it home. Um, But as for this race in particular, in 2016, my opponent voted in in favor of House Bill 757, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was opposed almost unanimously by the Georgia business community because of its discriminatory impact on the LGBT community. As the B in LGBT myself, he voted against my rights. He voted to limit my ability to take part in my community. And I cannot agree with that. And I cannot let that slide. So I'm running against him because he doesn't represent me. He doesn't represent people like me. And I think he's just not representative of this district of Kennesaw and North Marietta. Um, and is that made worse by the national environment? I know that uh, gay rights is not an issue uh, that is looked upon kindly by the current administration and the current Congress in Washington, and certainly the rhetoric in our politics today um, mm-hmm. is not very inclusive and welcoming on those issues. Um, is that part of it also for you? Um, it definitely is a contributing factor. I mean, the rhetoric that we're hearing, you know, Donald Trump tried to sell us on being a friend of the LGBT community, 
but everything that he's done since taking office has been counter to that impression that he tried to give. Uh, his attempt to ban transgender military service, um, his support for all the initiatives that Mike Pence is trying to push, uh, particularly in terms of conversion therapy, which is statistically proven not only to not work, but to actually increase rates of suicide amongst LGBT youth. You know, they're playing with our lives at this point, and that's something that we have to take a stand against. Uh, so what does a positive LGBT agenda look like uh, in the state legislature? A uh, positive LGBT agenda is Employment Non-Discrimination Act. It's ensuring that we have the right to be ourselves at work, at home, and as we're going through our communities. It's making sure that we have a voice and that our rights are viewed as just as important as everyone else in the state of Georgia. Um, so another one of the big discussions, and, and we've touched a little bit about this on the show before, um, is the Cobb County's position in this big debate about transit and expanding transit further out into right. the suburbs. Um, so what's your take on um, how best to expand transit out here and, and what this conversation going on in Cobb County means for the future of transit uh, in this region and in Atlanta? You know, that's definitely an issue that's very close to my heart. Um, Cobb County is home to possibly the worst traffic jam in the metro area with the Cobb Cloverleaf, uh, 75 and 285. And with all the transit talk that's going on, you know, South Cobb is on board. You know, we can get rail transit to South Cobb in the Cumberland area with very little pushback, but if you actually look at the actual traffic we're dealing with, as I do every day on my commute, all the traffic is north of Cumberland. So bringing transit just to that area, that's not gonna be enough because we're still gonna have jams, we're still gonna have delays, and we're still gonna have backups through Marietta to Kennesaw, all the way to Ackworth and beyond. Mm -hmm. So a real mass transit solution is we need to leverage the existing rail lines around which a lot of these communities, Kennesaw in particular, were built. We were built around the rail station. And that is a part of our heritage. That is something that we need to embrace and support as we look forward in terms of transit solutions. And did you say, is this the first time you've run for office? And um, what what does it mean to kind of be running for office in this moment? I think that there's a lot of enthusiasm among Democrats that really hasn't been seen, um, at mm-hmm. least as much statewide as we're seeing right now. Right. Um, so, but you're, you're a part of that as a candidate in this process. How does it feel to be a part of that enthusiasm and that momentum? It's... It's overwhelming and incredibly humbling at the same time. Um, There's a lot of passion and a lot of energy, and it's up to us as candidates to make sure that there are avenues to to channel that passion and that energy. Um, So that's a lot of work on us, but it's work that each and every one of us is very happy to do. 
but at the same time it's humbling because you see all these people who are passionate about making a change and making a difference in their communities and they want to support people like me all the candidates in our communities um i'm i'm at a loss for words uh for how that just feels it's it it's truly incredible um and i definitely think that we can build on the momentum that we've been seeing uh in november with the special elections when we flipped state senate district six uh as well as House Districts 117 and 119 out in the Athens area. And continuing on nationwide, we've seen the blue wave uh, just building and just crashing through district after district. And it's definitely a political awakening. We're seeing the death of political apathy, which is absolutely vital for a thriving democracy. Uh, are there any other issues that are important to you that you want to hit on? Well, uh, really the core issues of my campaign are what I call the four E's. Education, economy, environment, and equality. Like We've touched on equality and what that means to me. Um, education, we need to fully fund all schools in Georgia so that every child has an opportunity to get a high quality education. We need to expand and strengthen the Hope Scholarship. In terms of the economy, we need to make sure that we're investing in the jobs of tomorrow. That means the tech sector and the renewable energy sector as well, which brings me into the the environment. Uh, Renewables are the future. Uh, They're looking at putting in a solar power facility at Robbins Air Force Base that is going to cost $200 million, but it's got a great return on investment. It's For every $1.44 spent on that, we're looking at a watt of energy. Compare that to plant Vodal, bare minimum $25 billion when all is said and done, and their return is $11 per watt. So solar is cheaper, solar is cleaner, solar is the future, and I believe with Georgia's climate and our geography, it needs to be the future of this state. And um, if people want to learn more about your campaign and learn how Mm -hmm. they can support you, uh, how can they do that? Well, you can find me online, uh, www.votesouthwell.com. I'm also on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash vote Southwell. And my Twitter handle is, want to take a guess? Vote Southwell. Vote yeah, Southwell. Southwell. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, look him up. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to talk to us today. And uh, keep us up to date about how the race is going. And good luck. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Well, Luke, uh, thanks for taking a few minutes here to help us wrap up the conference. Um, I'm excited to see uh, the Birmingham mayor, Randall Woodfin, speak tonight um, and to see the last, the final conclusion of this conference. But uh, with that, I think we're going to leave that there this week. Uh, we're going to, next time we talk with you all, we're going to jump back in on the final stages of the legislative session. And I was start- had some sleep. 
he will have had some sleep. Um, and then uh, we will start looking towards campaign season and seeing if all of the energy in this room today from the Young Democrats of Georgia can tr- uh, translate into some gains in the state house, in the state senate. Maybe we'll have a Democratic governor and maybe we'll have a new, a few new Democratic members of Congress here from Georgia. Uh, But with that, we're going to let y'all get out of here this week. Uh, So we will talk to y'all next week. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.